Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. What's up, Mother Hog? Hello! This is a terrible introduction. (laughs) It's so bad. Hello, and welcome back to Getting Informed, a leftist literature podcast. Thank you, Al. (laughs) Did I kind of sound like fucking uh, Siri or the the GPS voice? Ari Shapiro of NPR. Oh, I don't know who that is, but I bet she's hot. This is NPR. Or, you know what? Yeah, it was very much a radio, like radio personality. Yeah, you hey, know, it was pretty good. Great, Al. I do voiceovers. Um, go to alisongropi.com for booking information. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Getting Informed. Today we are starting our newest book, which is Mutual Aid by Peter Kropotkin. I am one of your co-hosts, Alison Gropi. Colin? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm Colin Wooden. I'm here, too. I, I guess. With, with me is uh, Antifa Chad. <laughs> Say your goddamn name. No. Um, hi, I'm Shane Ragland. Uh, off to a really good start. <laughs> yeah, we're off to a great start. Good I right. also yeah. do the audio editing for this podcast, and I guess I'm now just an occasional guest. So this is the production team meeting where we talk about <laughs> production team reading. Pretty much. Hey, but anyway, <laughs> we have a couple news updates and a, a bit Life of Colin. Fucking howdy. Oh boy, do we. And we have what we're going to name a new segment. Colin, would you like to Welcome do the honors? To Hogwatch 2021. Hey, that's the enthusiasm you're giving this? Yes. Um, okay. Well, I mean, our first article of like, this is, this is mostly just like, like the hogs have not been up to a ton lately. Uh, this week's news is essentially who's been grabbed by the FBI after uh, storming the Capitol. Hmm. And also that, um, so just watch out uh, if you're on the street um, and be prepared because uh, the the chuds in Washington state, which Washington state chuds and Oregon chuds tend to be ahead of the curve a little bit, nationally speaking. In terms of brutality? Yes. Um, yeah, weapons and tactics, yeah. Uh, they have their home base. From using bear mace to using wasp spray. Is that qualitatively worse? I'm not up on yeah, my maces. it causes way worse long-term eye damage, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, it, it can give you permanent eye damage or blind you in certain cases. Yeah. It's also you... like, easier to get your hands on, I think. Yeah. Because it's it's like not a weapon. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just still like a weapon. The MacGyver macho instinct of these right wingers is yeah. honestly comical. It's kind of you feel like the Benny Hill soundtrack should be playing whenever they walk into a Home Depot. Anyway, anything else on Hogwatch? <laughs> yes. Um, the so Brian Sicknick, who was the Capitol Police officer who was beaten to death with several blunt objects uh, at on the steps of the Capitol building, including a fire extinguisher and an American flag. Uh, 
a Justice Department official, according to uh, Mark Levine, uh, who is a reporter, uh, Justice Department official on a call with reporters uh, said that in the case of Brian Sicknick's death, a, uh, the, the Justice Department is before a grand jury. And they're like, they're, they're starting to make moves about like what, what is being done about that. Is someone going to be charged with his murder? Uh, several people might be charged for his murder. You think they're going to do like a aiding and abetting slash like a group well, I mean, sort of? Everybody who was holding a weapon is in some way responsible. Because he was attacked by like 10 to 12 people. Um, I mean, yes, I think people should, in our current justice system, should get charged. But boy, is that going to cause a little bit of a ripple amongst oh, their supporters. That's, I mean, that's, that's the catch-22 of this, is do you, do you crack down or do you let them go and risk? See, if you crack down, you risk immediate reprisal. But if you let them go, you risk a second coup attempt. Mm-hmm. Because um, January 6th was a win. Like, was, that's was, how they view it. It was Sorry, a solid show of force. It was oh. a solid show of force. And it, it demonstrated the, the power of the hogs. Like, it demonstrated that they can just waltz into the Capitol building if they choose to. <laughs> or rather, that they could, whether or not they can. Now is a different question entirely. Yeah. I didn't but, mean to laugh. I just had that image of the cop that was like just opening up the barricade to let him in again. Well, apparently that was actually to lead them into a second holding zone. Like that footage was apparently oh. taken out of context. Mm. Okay. Well, that's slightly better. But no, like it was still, it was they, they still were pretty still much confirmed. confirmed. Compared to, yeah. the, to the force and defense that police have thrown against Black Lives Matter protesters... The ice building in Portland is better defended than the, the U.S. Capitol, Capitol building was. It's <laughs> absurd. There were four snipers on the building uh, on the roof of the ice building two nights ago. Like the Capitol was stormed because the the Metropolitan PD let it be stormed, among other reasons. In other news, uh, ice has been more aggressive in the last seven days. Or, 10 days than they've been since June and July. Eesh. Yeah. They have uh, deployed so much, like they deployed clouds of tear gas so thick that you couldn't see through it. Uh, they sent um, like an activist who was in a wheelchair to the hospital with three fractured bones. Flash Where was this? Uh, outside of the ice building in downtown Portland. Oh yeah. Like, Ice is going fucking hard right now. They're going hog wild. And that's why this is the hog watch. Joe Sorry. Biden's ice. Woo! Yeah. Also, we had confirmation from, um, oh God, it's, I haven't learned her name yet because she's only been the press secretary for about a week. Oh, speaking of which, this is January 26th. So she's been the press secretary for six days. Um, Saki, press secretary Saki said on day one, uh, on, on the 21st, that she had been keeping an eye on, and that the Biden administration is keeping an eye on what's going on in Portland. Ooh. That's scary. Yeah, uh, which means that uh, ICE has been acting with the consent of the Biden administration for six days now. <laughs> because if they know that this is happening and they have the power to stop it and they don't, that's consent for, for police brutality. Like if you if you have the power to stop police brutality, Ted Wheeler, and you don't stop it, that means that you're culpable. 
Mm. So um, I want to get your guys' thoughts on a couple of legislative actions that are happening in Washington State and in New Donk City. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, because my monologue draws to a close, thank God. Um, and that has been Hogwash. This Hogwash! Is hog, hog, Ted Wheeler's King of the Hogs. That's some hogwash right there. Um, <laughs> okay, so first things first. We have uh, the state of New York, um, January 6th uh, law, which I believe hasn't been voted on yet. Um, but it is uh, an act to amend the penal law in relation to the unlawful purchase or possession of a body vest. It's, it's illegalizing the ownership of a plate carrier or any type of like bulletproof body armor. Uh, and no. It, it is illegal to defend yourself. And well, not even to defend yourself, just to possess armor that would prevent a bullet from piercing your organs. Like this is the government speaking right now, not not Shane, but the yeah. government speaking. If we shoot you, we want you dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we this, shoot you, you better stay shot. Yeah. And I, and I quote: "A person is guilty of unlawful purchase or possession of a body vest when he or she knowingly unlawfully purchases or possesses a body vest." Such as term uh, as such term is defined in subdivision two of section two seventy point two zero of this article. This section shall not apply to active law enforcement officers or those occupations that require the use of body vests, as determined by the Department of State. Unlawful purchase or possession of a body vest is a class A misdemeanor for a first offense and a class E felony for a subsequent offense. Uh, and then uh, you have fifteen days after the passage of the law to get rid of. Um, any body vest that you have by turning it into local law enforcement. So we're just giving them free body vests. Correct. That's uh, super bad and makes no sense and is meant specifically to target those resisting brutality. I mean, maybe there'll be a small portion of right-wingers and freaking militia gear that are going to get hit by this too, but this is New York State. New York City? This is targeted at the protesters very blatantly kind of i'm just exhausted by the opaque nature of all this legislation at this point and uh now this one is really interesting too this one is uh presented by the washington state legislative body who is it who is it that's voting on this uh who is it who is it now i really like the way that washington state lays out their laws because they have problem solution data that supports that solution it's it's really nice instead of the way that new york city does it where it's just a decree um but because <laughs> you can kind of see the logic um but uh legislation the legislation sets a reasonable limit to the capacity of magazines that can be sold possessed or transferred in washington state 10 rounds the bill provides several exemptions, including for law enforcement, military, and recreational shooting ranges. It requires safe and secure storage for magazines grandfathered by possession on the effective date of the legislation. Basically, they cite uh, the fact that most mass shootings have been, uh, have been performed with magazines of 30 or more rounds. Most have been performed by rifles with 30-round magazines because 30 rounds is standard size for a rifle magazine. And so they're saying that uh, essentially they're illegalizing the sale of magazines exceeding 10 rounds, except if you already own them, you are a shooting range or your law enforcement. Eh, 
I don't, I mean, I don't hate it as much as the vest one. Yeah, I don't hate it as much. Also, why would law enforcement ever need a 30 round clip? Yeah, right? Blasting. You got to blast them. <laughs> Listen, if, if the Seattle, you know, if the Washington State Police don't have 60 round drum magazines on their ARs, how will they be able to stop crime? <laughs> what, are you, uh, what, what are your guys' opinions on, um, on the, and no, uh, I, I didn't mean to compare them because they're not at all the same. Uh, I think that uh, making, sh- you know, uh, preventing people from buying body armor is borderline tyrannical. While yes. uh, there is a debate to be had over uh, um, magazine sizes, magazine sizes. What do you What do you guys think? Um, when it comes to like the magazine sizes, even though I'm obviously pro, like I'm pro having the ability to purchase weapons and to and to defend yourself, but also I feel like yeah, the larger clips only incentivize those larger actions. Maybe that's maybe incentivizes isn't the right word, but. I overall don't have that many problems with it. It also kind of, because there's such a big debate when, like, whenever people talk about gun control, about what is classified as, as an assault weapon. And, and what is a, uh, and what is like a large, capa- a high capacity magazine too. Right. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And like, yeah. Because really the question about like, oh, we should uh, ban assault weapons in that discussion of gun control. Or if you limit it to just, all right, like 10 is the max then the the distinction between is it an assault is it a rifle or a pistol with a they're the same gun but if you put a wood stock on it then now it's a rifle or if you have a little hand stock it's a pistol like if you just destroy all the cement rifle semantics around that and just be like all right max magazine i think that's a good way to work around that yeah it's a good way to navigate that water for sure i think you're absolutely Right. right there Mm. I'm still not sure where I land on the question of whether or not people, citizens, I don't, well, first of all, whether or not anyone should own guns, but uh, I'm certainly currently put myself in the camp of pro-gun reform, heavy gun reform. So I, I see no issue for the populations that would argue about hunting and the, and like personal protection for a magazine with 10 rounds tops. Right. Because, like, when you're hunting, you're going to have time to reload. You're not going to need a 30-round 30, 30 freaking capacity to blow through a herd of buffalo. You're not going to be going after a column of buffalo. Like, it's one deer. Calm down. Yeah, a deer usually goes down in one or two shots. That's all you need. Yeah. You're uh, well, fine. Yeah, especially, yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. like, if we were living in a more ideal society, I'd be like, yeah, no one should have guns. But because we have very authoritarian, we're living in a very authoritarian state, physically and and like and the state that has a monopoly on violence i don't think giving it mm. even more of one is a good idea especially given that like law enforcement who would be <clears throat> pardon me who would be the only people who are allowed to have a magazine over 10 rounds law enforcement don't exist to protect marginalized groups if, that, no. if there's one big takeaway from the last year it's that i think the law should apply to everyone including police officers yeah. because uh if we just get the guns off of the market and stop selling and producing those guns in America. But then just the military has them. No, I don't want them to have it either. But that's uh, the thing. It's like, that's a lot. It's, it's, it's a, very a far, lot. Far <laughs> off. It's like, it's far out. Like maybe we'll get there eventually, but there's no, yeah. there's the current not in my lifetime. One of the interesting things too, is, uh, I was talking about this with Zach and he was talking about how, um, 10 rounds isn't standard capacity even for a pistol anymore. Most modern pistols have between a 12 and 19 ma- round magazine. Why? 
that's like how guns are designed now is what are you going to do with all those bullets? You're going to fire them rapidly for why? No, I'm sorry. This bid's just in my head. It's just, why would anyone need those? Go, I mean, go carve a pumpkin, go knit a sweater, put the well, gun down. Well, well, cause I know protection. I understand the well, need for guns. I'm not stupid. It just, the proletariat must never be disarmed, Al. Oh, no, of course. Listen. Under no pretext shall the we, proletariat be disarmed. Also, because gun companies can make more money if they sell you larger magazines. Yeah, uh, of course. Well, I mean, I mean, like a 30-round magazine, or as Zach, uh, uh, and, and I think gun culture as, as a whole refers to them, fun sticks. Now those, I'm a little like, all right. You don't really need that. <laughs> you know. yeah. I guess that's what I'm mainly opposed to is gun recreation. Is just like I don't see the necessity for something that personally dangerous as a means of recreation. But then That's, again, skateboarding exists. There, exactly, there is no reason for recreation. I mean, there's like a slight fun in having something go boom right in front of you. But other than that, it's yeah, it's pointless. Like, it's just a waste of metal. It, it is a weapon, and you have to respect it as such. That being said, I think that everyone should know how to use it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, a tool at this point, like no. a modern tool. Weapons I mean, are, it always has been, but <laughs> weapons are tools, but they hurt things. That's what they do. Right, and I think there should be a lot more work into gun education, mm-hmm. not just in how to use it, but yes, how to like really taught to understand the tool itself and what yeah. it does. And safety. If there were more people who were taught and like instilled in their brain not to look down the fucking barrel. <laughs> So many children in early '40s movies would be still alive today. Yes. So many, so many alfalfa bits from uh, Little Rascals. And I think, uh, I think that is something in our in our society. We have this sort of mystical gun culture, you know, where mm-hmm. the gun isn't isn't just a weapon. It is sort of this like American, you know, it's a tool of my freedom, brother. It is the means by which I can... It's like, yeah, I, I get it, dude. But also, you know, my, my uh, scalding take on this is that, yes, you know, you can, you can do gun control all day long, but I think that the way you prevent mass shootings is by de-radicalizing white supremacists. Yes. Yeah, it's usually a really good way to go about it. Because um, fortunately, 3D printed guns don't work very well right now. For now, you know, there's a fair amount of those, and you can make those wherever. Um, Whatever you somehow have a 3D printer, which means they're exclusively for um, upper white middle class, <laughs> which is surprise um, where most white supremacists live, as far as demographics. And demographics of like where most uh, mass shooters come from. Mm-hmm. Listen, I've, as, as has been the theme the last couple of readings, uh, my go-to solution for most things, and in this case, de-radicalizing white supremacists, is empathy and putting resources into education and community support. Oh, yeah. Like, Correct. If, if we got resources specifically targeted at the dis, I know we need other resources more right now and other resources should come first. But when it comes to targeting white supremacy, target disillusioned young white men with some educational and fun programs and to fix, get 
the education system that directly and almost intentionally leads them to to be dis, be oh, disillusioned yes. and isolated. Also, oh yes. Not only the social problems, but also the education tells like the way the, the narrative that that like history is taught in American schools that leads mm-hmm. it's down this white supremacist rabbit hole. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't it's not supposed to quote unquote, but. It basically gives them all the ammunition to just make a slight left turn. You're absolutely right. Which is why Trump's 1776 commission for making education more propagandic was doubly scary. Not just Holy because- shit. Al, did you see the 70, 70, uh, 1776 commission? Good call, Shane. Oh my God. Okay, this will get my energy up a little bit. I oh think. yeah, we're here. This, the fucking 1776 project literally defended slavery. Yep. Just like PragerU. 776 Commission is basically what if PragerU was like the default American education? Was government sanctioned? <laughs> they, said, they said that the three-fifths compromise was good, actually. Really? It was like it's, one last mask-off moment by, by Trump before he got kicked out. Okay. In all fairness to Donald Trump, uh, they didn't say that it was good. They said that it was bad but necessary. Ah, ah, ah. They said they said essentially like, well, our country wouldn't be so great today if we didn't have slavery, right? Think on that, libtards. Like, and it was just a decree that all schools adopt this new reading of American history. Yeah, just like how all American all American schools are supposed to say that the Civil War was about states' rights and not slavery. Oh, yeah. States' rights for what is basically the first question that comes up after that. Thankfully, there are some teachers who kind of don't listen, comply with that. They actually teach actual history. Thank God. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was taught it was about slavery. I didn't hear about the states' rights argument. I was told it was by state, it was states' rights by one teacher, and then the other teacher, the next teacher was like, yeah, so it was about slavery. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I figured. The states' rights thing didn't make any sense, and he was like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I got told states' rights, yeah. Really? Maybe it's Illinois. Oh, oh my god, the 1776 project has already been taken down all over the place. I was trying to read out a quote, but it's already been absolutely nuked off the internet by the Biden administration. Um, Good. <laughs> but the 1776 project had, like, threats to democracy as, like, a section, and it listed, like, fascism, socialism, and communism as the three major uh, threats to democracy. And then the fascism section was like two pages long, or I'm sorry, it was like two sentences. And it was just like, Hitler was bad, moving on. (laughs) It spent a very long time talking about how universities are bad, actually, because they indoctrinate people with communism. And that's how you lose your democracy, is too much education. And just a reminder that, like, that emphasis on anti-communism, anti-socialism is, that's what fascism that is That was born literally out of. in Ur Fascism by Umberto Eco, yes. the first text we read on this podcast. Go re- go re-listen to that. It's good. But yeah. Um, Best of Reds. Anyway. It's well, also like, des- fascism is designed as anti-communism. Yeah. Hitler literally styled himself as an anti-communist. That was his, like, first big thing. You're absolutely branding move. I mean, and we see it today with the Proud Boys. They don't posit themselves and, and, you know, every other major group. But I tend to use the Proud Boys as my go to example because everyone who isn't under a rock knows what the Proud Boys are by now. 
Also, um, most other ones kind of fall into similarity or like mimic the Proud Boys in various different ways. Yeah, and the, the Proud Boys are the most active. They're also the funniest, just because they're so dysfunctional. They're, they're incredibly dysfunctional. Um, but like they have positioned themselves as anti-communists. Their big slogan is fuck Antifa. They're like Western chauvinists and bro democracy or they're not, but they say that they are, you know, and that's their, that's their like, you know, their fucking thing is, is they posit, they, they position themselves as anti-communists when in reality they are fascists. That's all. That's the, that's it. <laughs> all right. Should we get to the reading? <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you for your patience. Um, this has been a long, low energy and rambling intro. But here we are. I've not been sleeping enough. I'm going to force some energy into this podcast right now. <laughs> this podcast is going to be fun to listen to. So help me God. Anyway. <laughs> Always try. From... No, yeah, this is a shitty podcast time. episode. That's because it's actually performance art. You were all fooled. That we're so fooled into listening to an intentionally boring podcast. All right. Hello, anyway. and welcome back to the intentionally boring podcast, podcast. I've just lit podcast. As I said earlier, today we are reading chapters one, two, and three of Mutual Aid by Peter Kropotkin. If I said that right, thank God. I was calling it Kropotnik all day because Spudnik takes up space rent-free in my head forever. Uh, but he basically outlines the way that Darwin was mistaken. Well, not Darwin was mistaken, but the way that Darwin's texts and focus on competition was a mistake, basically, and is not observable in nature. Yeah. And is used as, like, the justification for... Brutality? Uh, well, for capitalism. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's very much, like, the modernist way to sort of use naturalist theory as your defining mechanism for your social theory. Mm, kind of like a new uh, phrenology, like another version of science that has been used wrong. Well, phrenology wasn't even science. No, so for that was wrong. Phrenology was just racism with numbers on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. If we, if we add numbers to our racism, that gives it more legitimacy. If we, if we make a degree in this type of racism, we can really... But yeah, like, um, it, exactly. It's, it's um, a misinterpreted science used to justify bullshit. Social Darwinism. Yeah. Which the thing is, he also points out frequently that Darwin himself, it cannot be said how much Darwin would have even approved of his take because he points out that in Darwin's own text, he emphasizes examples of mutual aid rather than the big terms he uses are mutual aid versus mutual struggle. All right. So we probably like get the defining of like the like the kind of opening concepts from the first two or like basically Um, from the first chapter in. I I have one thing before we even get there. Okay. Which was my initial sort of trepidation uh, because a certain Canadian psychologist has made me leery of any arguments that use the natural world as um, basis for judgments of human society. Is it who uh, I think it is? Is it Lobster Man? J- is it Lobster J- King? JPD? JPD. Jordan Balthasarius Peterson has made me uh, leery Permit. of any. Um, Women are chaos. <laughs> uh, can confirm. Anyway, 
uh, Men I, are order. Let's confirm. My book <laughs> is titled An Antidote to Chaos. <laughs> no more women. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Well, yes, I understand. Well, because you're right to be wary, considering how much, as we said, that science at all has been used. Science and fake science and bad interpretations have always been used to justify shit, like literal shit. I'm going to use lobster erotica to justify my philosophy on life. Lobsters, creatures that barely have brains, have hierarchies, and therefore so should you. My favorite quote from 12 Rules for Life is, and I quote, uh, be like the lobster. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. What? Lo- ha- has he seen a lobster? <laughs> I don't think he knows what a lobster is. <laughs> also, it's it's funny now that I've read these first two chapters to think of Jordan Peterson using natural examples because this man clearly talks about all oh, this time I spent in the wilderness <laughs> in Siberia and like his actual experiences observing nature. And other and then scientist there's- experiences. Oh, yeah. And then there's Jordan, stand up straight with your shoulders back like a lobster Peterson. Did he actually fucking say that, Shane? Yes, it's a quote from the book. Unbelievable. I have a great video I should should send your way. This Uh, man has a PhD. And analyzing, that basically just tears apart his book. Also... I have a I have a quote uh, that is so fucking deeply funny from like the third paragraph of chapter one. Yeah? Which is... Leaving aside the economists who know of natural science but a few words borrowed from second-hand vulgarizers, we must recognize that even the most authorized exponents of Darwin's views did their best to maintain those false ideas. Literally saying, even people who love Darwin are doing their best to uphold the stupid bullshit that has been derived from his legitimate science, and that's not even talking about the Jordan Petersons of the world who are stupid assholes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think one of the best early points he makes is that he's like, all right, so Darwin defined like the struggle for life as kind of like survival of the fittest. But he immediately goes, all right, then what defines the fittest? Mm-hmm. Because the survival of the fittest has been taken a lot of different ways, especially social Darwinism. E that's very mm-hmm. scary and also justifies a lot of um, authoritarian eugenics. Yeah, justifies eugenics and stuff. When really, what he uh, Kropotkin unearths about this idea of the fittest is the fittest is those is the animals who so are, are like, socially are, intelligent socially and like intelligent can... and can. I guess band together in, com- in communities. Um, people are focusing too much on the mutual struggle aspect of how Darwin defines nature with a capital N, because he's. We all learned about evolution as survival of the fittest. Only those that are strongest will pass their traits onto the next generation. But when you consider how much it's observed that animals get along and work together. Perhaps the traits that equal fittest are just not what we valued in, which it relates a lot to the stuff that Val Plumwood talks about in um, eco-feminist texts like, uh, oh, I have it pulled up right over here. She has this uh, infamous book about how the negative association between the feminine and traits like community and like family and home life and things like nurturing has really equal the downfall of humanity in the natural sphere and how it's not observable in nature. It's feminism and the mastery of nature. But I thought about it a lot while I was reading this because this is arguably, when you look at it from that lens, a feminist take on biology. 
From 1902. From 1902 by a Russian communist. <laughs> oh, he did identify as an anarchist, I believe, in 1870. Yeah. 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 And I mean... <clears throat> One of the things that I thought was really interesting was that he didn't even necessarily, like, he talked about how it wasn't necessarily mutual aid itself that made uh, an animal bit, you know, in the, in the Darwinian sense of survival of the fittest. It was the ability of an animal to adapt to perfectly suit its environment. Mm-hmm. And that mutual aid as a survival mechanism was one of the superior ways of ensuring that that happened. Like, essentially, mutual aid, mutual aid is the, like, ideal means by which animal life survives. Mm-hmm. He gives a million animal examples, a couple of which I want to go into. Yeah. But just to top off that last thought, um, there was one section that I really liked. Uh, I can't find it right now, but to paraphrase it, it was mutual aid is the first step towards... Uh, community confidence, like confidence in your community, which is the first step towards courage and individual initiative is the first step towards intellectual evolution. Mm -hmm. I just really liked the connection between mutual aid and like giving people the resources to act is what will make the species stronger as a whole. And it reminded me of this whole argument that we hear constantly uh, that the anti-socialist argument is like, but if people aren't working, then they'll be lazy and they won't, they'll turn into their worst selves. And the counter argument is actually, I believe that if people aren't constantly in fear of starvation, they'll be their best self. Because what drives people to exhibit anti-social behavior as actually as animals, as he explains in the book is when they are struggling for supplies or resources. Mm -hmm. A lot of species he mentions that were once social uh, became antisocial after the intervention of humans that limited their resources or may put them into direct conflict with each other. Which is like a uh, sad. Also, yeah, it's sad. And he also specifically mentions how, um, especially thinking about like survival of the fittest argument, he's like, a lot of ape species are, are thriving and doing great. And I have a story about that to talk about later on. Um, mm. But a lot of like the larger, stronger ape species, like gorillas and orangutans, are kind of slowly going away because mm -hmm. they over time became less sociable and sort of stuck more to family groups rather than large clans or tribes. I think or there's like a, an animal word. I can't remember the word that he used. He but. mentions the specific word for groups of monkeys. Where is it? Bands? I don't know. It is bands. Okay. A band of monkeys. I love it. Oh, it's going to be my next D&D group. And or the band, birds. the monkeys. The monkeys. I call a Anyway, what were you going to say? <laughs> um, he starts off with insects and how it's like, ants seem to be doing pretty darn well for themselves. Oh, and I love the ants. The ants and the bees, it's like, the, mm -hmm. they're working out pretty well. Like, as any human knows, like, you can't stop ants. Oh, how no. Ants have, I... a, ants have a second stomach. Uh, he talks about, which I legitimately don't know if this is true, but he talks about how ants intentionally gorge themselves so that when they return to the uh, hole, they return to their colony. If any ants did not gather enough food, they can share it. And vampire bats do the same thing, actually. A lot of animals do. Mm -hmm. It's uh, oh, cool. an extremely common behavior among animals that operate in colonies. I loved the ant section primarily because he describes ants as if they are the ultimate socialists. Because 
there's one section he does a lot of talk about animal behavior as we'll get into but the, i think the animal anecdote i liked most was when he said if two uh rival ant colonies are fighting and one of an an ally ant asks their fellow ally ant for food and if that ant refuses to share food with his comrade the other ants will turn on him even before attacking their enemy ant because he was a selfish asshole because he is an <laughs> enemy yeah. yeah, if he if doesn't you, help the group. If you are not sharing with the group, if you're not doing your part, you are, that's what makes you the enemy. Um, I love that. If you are that. privileging the, the self over the community, then you are an enemy to the community. Mm-hmm. And he also sense. mentioned that if a rival ant would feed their rival, then the enemy ants would treat that ant as a friend. Which then makes so you wonder how, how the hell did I end up in war again? <laughs> I know, right? It's, so. it's, it's almost like it's, it's a very, it's almost like the ant and the way you can create a metaphor about or a connection between how ant warfare works with like human warfare like world war one perfect example christmas 19 oh yeah mm-hmm. the famous the christmas yeah, they all just play, play ball and they're like i don't want to kill these guys anymore still gonna do it tomorrow but tonight like, it's christmas it's christmas let's do it let's hang out mm-hmm. also i'm so sorry uh but i just got sent a hog watch update oh really yeah, which is that according to Vice News, Roger Stone used Oath Keepers as personal security on the night of January 5th. So he knew. The day before they, st- they were involved in the storming of the Capitol, Roger Stone used the Oath Keepers as personal security. <sighs> Are we surprised? No, no, but like it's amazing to see funny. that like these establishment conservative ghouls are literally using militia members who would later storm the Capitol the next day as personal security. Hey, you think that's gonna get him like penalized in any way, shape, or form? Nope. That'd be great. Nope. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit too uh, jaded. I mean, jaded at this point. Yeah, uh, the the guy who uh, was wearing the, the Camp Auschwitz sweater might be facing up to one year in prison. Anyway, uh, back not to, to mutual know. aid, a nice yeah. happy thing. Uh oh, also the title of my notes page is The Ultimate Refutation of Alpha Beta Theory. I, I was gonna bring mm-hmm. that up. I had I had some something to say where it's also when he mentions that animals that had either been ca- captive or taken mm-hmm. captive by humans or um become less social because of interference by humans. That less sociability destabilized and created a different sort of structure. They AKA created a more hierarchical structure. Hierarchical structure, which is why the whole alpha beta wolves thing that kicked off this whole stupid red pill shit. Who even the author of that original book was like, "No, I was wrong. That's just about like wolves in captivity." Because it, please in, stop making it about sex. Please stop. Yeah, because <laughs> in. In the wild, wolves the fan fiction like, community went wild. Basically, by like, oh god, the Omega Verse. Have you ever? Yes. I mean, I haven't read anything, but I also I watched them. I have. Please no more. Please no more. But um, you guys get that... to talk about dive bars in Oregon for ten minutes. I get to talk about the <laughs> Omega Verse. This is the other side of that coin, bitch. This I'm is, kidding. This is the worst episode. <laughs> so far, so far, the raised episode. Um, it's it's very tangential. 
But anyway. yeah, the way like wolves organize themselves in the wild, very much to, almost just you know by families, like yeah, you know, like dad or grandpa st- sits up front in a minivan style, as yeah. one will do with a family. It's but- like all right, you. Everyone seems to kind of listen to grandpa because he's been around longer. Also, he's kind of just everyone's dad at this point. You listen to dad a bit, but he's We're not the alpha. He's blood. just old. This is true. Well, yeah, that's where that study came from. And he says it about a lot of different species, including, I think, weasels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. And that's, that is sort of the points of chapters one and two, is that zoology, he said, and those scientists which deal with man continually insist upon what they call the pitiless law of struggle for existence. But they forget the existence of another law which may be described as the law of mutual aid, which law, at least for the animals, is far more essential than the former. He pointed out how the need of leaving progeny necessarily brings animals together and, quote, the more animals keep together, the more they mutually support each other, the more are the chances of the species for surviving, as well as making further progress in, in, in its intellectual development. All classes of animals, he continued, and especially the higher ones, practice mutual aid. Right, and I also like this one, like, he was talking, he's talking about bees and how bees combine their efforts in mm-hmm. the first chapter, and then at the end of that section, he... There's this one line quote where he says, but how many human settlers will perish in new countries simply for not having understood the necessity of combining their efforts? I thought that was so funny. I had that one too. He's just like, you guys, it's not that hard. <laughs> Work together, my God. Like he doesn't, he doesn't talk about this, um, but one thing that bees do that really sort of exemplifies the power of combined labor is uh, when a wasp attacks a beehive. A wasp is like five or six times the size of a bee and capable of killing hundreds of bees by itself. So what bees will do is that they will hang on to the wasp. They will simply grab it until hundreds of bees accumulate around the wasp. And then they vibrate their bodies together, generating Mm -hmm. heat until they cook the wasp inside of its own exoskeleton. They create enough heat that they kill themselves, too. But the hive survives. But the hive survives, and fewer bees die by the cooking the wasp method, by the direct confrontation, than they would if they attacked it one by one and let the wasp just murder them. I have something to bring up about jets relating to this idea. Mm-hmm. Kind of about, like, how much more structurally sound non-hierarchical forms of organizing are. Which, basically, I, had, I wrote it down in my notes, um, kind of kind of like comparing two different kinds of organisms that, cause like, our, like, like let's think about social structures, like whether it's um, a hierarchical one or a lateral network based one. If we compare a hierarchical one to the way our, like our bodies work, where there is a hierarchy of operations and there is a hierarchy of power, like the brain's in charge. It, it is related to, and it takes kind of feedback and through every other part of the body. But if you shoot someone in the head, they are dead. <laughs> really? But if you take a, something that's a bit less hierarchical in structure, like a tree, if you shoot a tree, no matter where you shoot it, you've just wasted your time. Yeah. I do think my one hesitance here is the utilitarian nature of... Listen, I love theoretically the idea of the group coming together to protect everyone, but there, I guess it's the individualist in me that when I hear about the trolley problem sort of thing where... 
how many people should we sacrifice for the good of the group? It makes me kind of feel icky, but they do. And I want to tie this into Kropotkin mentions that animals, I have the quote here, uh, going now over to mammals. The first thing that strikes us is the overwhelming numerical predominance of social species over those few carnivores, which do not associate. He very clearly says that species that are more sociable are seen in much greater numbers, which he points to as proof of success of their evolution, but also makes me feel like if they're, if the whole thing is sacrificing the few for the good of the many, that just means that they need more few to go on the pile. It concerns me slightly. Well, yeah, I mean, not ultimately, <laughs> survival of the fittest is a numbers game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is that is how nature works. Is whatever species can outbreed the others, you know, or can or can die the least. Yeah, yeah. Or have the or have the le- the least amount of significant assaults on their structures or like their yeah. their family their units or bands or whatever. Can can survive whatever adversity. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny because no, no, no. Yes, as you as you were saying, sir. But um, related to that, yes, uh, he kind of makes that the dichotomy between you know single iso- isolated predators and sociable groups is that you have the people that cannot get killed. I mean, the animals that cannot get killed very well, and then the animals that can outbreed. But he also points out that one way to not get killed is to avoid competition, and that nature actually points animals in the direction of just avoiding competition by migrating. Right. Mm-hmm. 